listeners would call. You would be Dave. Hey, this is Dave. Hey, Dave and the DJ saying hi. I want to check into the Heartbreak Hotel. And the DJ would say, what room? Uh, Give me room 103. What's the problem, Dave? Well, I came home tonight and uh, my wife said, you know, she doesn't want to be with me anymore. So I need to check into the Heartbreak Hotel. People literally thought that it was a real hotel. (laughs) 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 It was such an incredible feature. I'm like, this is three o'clock in the morning. They are eating it up. Ben's Town President Dave Chachi Dennis loves radio and all of his radio friends. Hey, Chachi. Hey, everybody. Because Chachi loves everybody. My next guest has programmed some of the biggest stations in the country, including WGCI in Chicago and KBLX and KRBQ in San Francisco. He's been named Billboard Monitor Program Director of the Year, R&B Hip Hop Operations Manager slash Program Director of the Year by Billboard. He's a Living Legends Foundation honoree, a Star Program Director of the Year. He's won a Salute to Excellence Award. He was ranked as the nation's seventh best program director by Radio Inc. He's a recipient of the State of District Media Award by U.S. Congress, which is a first. That's impressive to be awarded something by the U.S. Congress. And he's received the Midwest Radio Music Association's Icon Award. Please welcome Elroy Smith. Shachi, so good to be here. Thank you so much uh, for uh, those kind words. And um, I'm honored to uh, chat with you today. And just got to give credit to God and all of the people that um, have assisted me. I couldn't do this uh, alone. I mean, what an amazing career. And uh, I've got to say our mutual friend, R-Dub, from Sunday Night Slow Jams, he's been such a fan of yours. And he had told me years ago, just when he was getting his start, he went to see you in Chicago. And uh, he was just a little baby DJ at the time. And you could not have been more respectful. And you spent a tremendous amount of time with him and just helped him throughout his career. And I've heard that story over and over again. And you've got, I think, just this unbelievable reputation in the business. Where does that come from? Well, I have this uh, mantra, treat people the way you would want to be treated. And so many times people took the time to help me, uh, Dave, to fulfill my dream. And I made a commitment that I'm going to do the same thing to others. And uh, so far, it's it's worked just to have someone inquire about how did you get into the business or how I can get into the business. Those same questions, Dave, I was asking someone back in the day. And for me to keep all of what I've been taught to myself, I just think it's wrong. If I can help my fellow man wherever or whatever way I can, I'll do that. I find that so touching, but also just impressive. And as I've kind of moved on in you know, my career and I've, I guess, grown within the industry, mm-hmm. I have more people come to me looking for opportunities and seeking counsel. And I really do the best I possibly can to mm-hmm. be as helpful as I can. But I would be lying to you to tell you that sometimes I don't get a little overwhelmed by it, <laughs> meaning mm-hmm. that especially in our particular world, we have a lot of voiceover talent that will come to us. And I want to be as helpful as possible. How do you keep so level-headed and calm and just friendly about it? What I like about, or there's a lot of things I like about you, but something in particular that I really admire, when I speak to you and when I've met you in the past, I feel like I'm the only person in the room. And <laughs> I find that just such an amazing attribute, I guess is the right word for it. Uh, were you taught that early on in life? This may sound a little strange, but I'll, 
I learn a lot of how I treat people by reading the Bible. And it gives me so many principles um, like you shouldn't be jealous, you shouldn't be envious, envious things that we already know. But when I read the Bible, I stop and say, boy, I need to work harder in that area or in this area. So I just want to let you know that that is one of the uh, foundations that I try. I'm not sitting here saying that I am a huge success at it. But Dave, I make an effort to always remember to treat people, you know, the way I would want to be treated. And every time I do that, Dave, I always get convicted. Man, you're not doing good in that area, Elroy, so fix it. And I try to fix it. So, yeah, if I'm talking to you, I want to give you eye contact. I want to give you, you know, all of my attention and love up on you in whatever way I can. And that's the way I try to conduct my life. Tell me a little bit about growing up. I grew up on this uh, little island called Bermuda. Chachi, I don't know if you've ever been there. Um, It's in the Atlantic Ocean. Only 65,000 people uh, live on this island. And um, grew up with my brothers and sisters. I was the youngest in the family. And I wanted to do something pertaining to entertainment. So I tried joining the singing group in Bermuda. That didn't work out. We did this performance. Um, I still see the performance vividly (laughs) in my mind. It was in the 70s or early 80s. And, um, you know, after the performance. Now, this was... This was a big performance, though. There was like 5,000 people in the audience. Yeah, it was 5,000 people, uh, and I felt really good about it. So we met as a group right after the performance, uh, Chachi, and the group pulled me aside and said, you know, um, the performance was okay. Elroy, you were the problem. And I didn't know what they meant by that. Um, You talked all throughout um, (laughs) the song. Because I was like sort of the MC, and okay. not really the singer. <laughs> and I didn't know where they were going with their point, but they fired me right on the spot as the concert was in progress. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So I walked away feeling horrible. I can only imagine. Was your family and friends in the audience? Oh, everyone was there. So, oh. Dave, the very next... Uh, I, I think the show was on a Saturday. So that Monday... I went to uh, the local radio station in Bermuda applying for a job to be on the air. So they gave me this script to read and I fumbled, fumbled, fumbled. And one of the people that was there to audition me said, you may want to um, go to school. And at that point, I had dropped out of high school. And so I was like, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do? I couldn't read, um, and I applied to the school in New York called Announcing Training Studios. I'm sure you remember those schools. Sure. Become a DJ in nine months. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I went to New York for nine months, learned the fundamentals of becoming a disc jockey, went back to Bermuda, got a little part-time job at the station, but I did not feel fulfilled. So Uh I said, boy, I want to go to college. Keep in mind, no high school diploma. (laughs) no transcripts. So I applied to this college in Boston, Graham Junior College in Kenmore Square in Boston. 
And they said, well, we need your transcripts or your diploma or something to verify that you graduated from high school. And I said, I don't have that. They said, look, we are closing in a year and a half. If you can get a letter from a politician and a minister representing your character, we may you know, allow you in. So I went around this small little island. Remember, it's only 65,000 people. Sure. <laughs> I got a letter from a minister and a politician, sent it off to the school, and they said, Mr. Smith, based on what has been expressed on these two documents, we are going to allow you to join Graham Junior College. However, remember, we will be shutting down in a year and a half. So a year and a half approaches and they came to me and said, Mr. Smith, one more semester, we are shutting down. So Dave, I had to double up on courses to graduate. So I ended up doing nine courses to get my associate's degree in uh, broadcast journalism. And I achieved that. That's amazing. Uh, so I went back to Bermuda at that point. They're like, this guy is ready. Let's give him some more work. Right. And then here I am in Bermuda on the radio. Mm, something is still missing. So I wanted to go and get my bachelor's degree. So I transferred those transcripts to Emerson College in Boston. Sure. It's a great yeah. school. Yeah. We and have a they, campus, uh, Emerson campus here in LA. Very good. Yeah. Very good. So Emerson said, come on in and did two years at Emerson while at Emerson, I uh, applied for an internship at a station called WILD, which was um, a little daytimer, sunrise to sunset radio station. They played R&B music, did a part-time uh, position uh, on the air. Uh, and then after that, it was time to graduate. The year that I graduated with a bachelor's degree in mass communications, they offered me a full-time job at the radio station. Incredible. It seems to me that tenacity is a big part of your success. Well, I'll say this. This will be a mind blower for you. While I was uh, on the air, time is running out. School visa is running out. Oops. Oh, boy. I got to go back home. <laughs> I can't stay here. So at that point, the owner of the station said, look, I will support you. I will be your sponsor. And I'll help you to get your, what they call a resident alien card, a green card. Okay. And he was able to do that. And uh, in 1983, uh, I became a legitimate citizen of America. So it's been so many bumps, uh, Chachi, that I, you and I can talk all day. Amazing. Your parents, what did they do in Bermuda? Well, uh, my mother was what we call a housekeeper for the premier would be like the president of America, the premier in Bermuda, okay. Brit British colony. So they refer to the head person as the premier and she was his uh, housekeeper. My father worked at uh, a laundromat uh, at one of the hotels in Bermuda. So I really was the first one in our family to graduate from, from college were they supportive of you leaving oh, the country? And oh, my goodness. Big time. Mom was so proud. I'm glad you mentioned that. She came to my graduation uh, in Boston. Oh. And it was just so moving to have her there, knowing you know, all of the energy, knowing all of the advice that she gave her son. And I was disobedient. She did not want me to you know, uh, not finish school. And but I thought I had it together, and I didn't. And sometimes as you get older, you rewind and say, man, only if I would have 
followed my mom's advice or my father's advice when they gave it to me back in the day. <laughs> they say youth is wasted on the young. <laughs> right, right, right. I think that's where that, uh, that must come from, right? Yep, yep, it's yep. It's amazing what we, uh, what we learn as we get uh, more and more mature throughout the years and how we become more and more like our parents as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> true, true. In so many, were they able to uh, live to see you go on to have such great success? Well, my father passed away via terminal cancer. He was a cigarette smoker. Every day he would come home from work. He got to work at 5.30 in the morning, came home at around 2 o'clock, and had a cigarette, had, you know, some something to drink. <laughs> when I say something to drink, not <laughs> Sprite. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so he lost his life, and um, years later, I went to visit my mom to um, just say hi. By then, I was settled in America. And I said, Mom, uh, I got some calls from people, but you never told me that they called. And she responded very negatively and uh, sort of loud. And I'm like, something is wrong. She said, nobody called. No one called. I'm like, something is wrong. The next day, Dave, uh, the iron stayed on. And I said, now, this iron's been on all day. The following day, there was a bump on her body. So I mentioned to one of my siblings, something is wrong. So she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Mm. So I lost my mom, but I was happy to be able to visit and discover, uh, Shashi, that something was wrong. My grandmother, I lost her uh, many years ago back in the 80s to Alzheimer's as well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a terrible, terrible disease. Yep. So you're now in the States and you've got your green card and you're working at the station full time. What are you on air at the station? What are you doing specifically? Yeah, uh, small radio station, sunrise to sunset. So I was doing uh, the morning show and I was also the program director. So I had two roles to play two years after I graduated from uh, Emerson College and didn't realize the significance. I was just so happy to be on the radio, so happy to be the program director of a station that was respected by the community uh, in the city of uh, Boston. Didn't know, you know, what would evolve from this. I could have stayed in Boston all my life, but I got a little frustrated after a while because the station would always sign off. (laughs) Well, in the wintertime, it would sign off at 415 Oh, my gosh. And sign on at 7.15. And I remember one day walking through my apartment saying, I can't do this anymore. I got to find an FM station um, somewhere, whether it's in Boston or whether it's somewhere else. So I had an opportunity uh, via Jerry Clifton, consultant Jerry Clifton, told me all about an opportunity in Dallas at a station called 100.3 Jam. So here I am, my first uh, 24-hour FM radio station as the program director. What was that experience like? Oh, unbelievable, uh, Dave. Why? I would stay up all night uh, in bed listening to the station because it didn't sign off in the wintertime <laughs> <laughs> at 4.15, right? Uh, so, and then yeah, I'm like, and then it's stereo. I'm leaving <laughs> mono <laughs> to program a station in stereo. And then on top of that, 100,000 watts in Dallas, Texas. Oh, man. Uh, talking about a flamethrower. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. How long were you in Dallas? 
I was in Dallas for two years, and uh, the owner of the AM station back in Boston reached out and said, look, oh, I got fired there. I just want to make sure I throw that in there. Wait, and, you got fired in Dallas? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and So and now was, you've been... You've been fired twice by the (laughs) band in Bermuda, and now the uh, so you've got a lot of experience at this point. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. What's your as do I, of course. What's in? I think most people in our industry, but what's your advice in how to cope with being let go? How do you keep your attitude as positive as you do? I appreciate you asking that. Um, advice from Barry Mayo, legendary programmer, station owner, uh, general manager, consultant, all of those things. Uh, when it happened to me in Dallas, Barry reached out to me and said, don't doubt yourself. This is your first time you know, being fired in radio business. Don't doubt yourself. Keep believing in what you can do. And I just needed those words because I went through almost a point of depression. Why? When I was let go, the phone was ringing like crazy. A week later, the the phone sort of died. The third week, no calls. I said, maybe my phone is disconnected. So I ended up calling my number (laughs) (laughs) to make sure that it's not a problem with my phone. And that advice I um, will always keep with me and also acknowledge your former employer. Thank them. A lot of people, oh, I'm bitter and philosophical differences. No, thank them for the experience. And that's what I've always done. So I moved on from Dallas, went back to Boston because the owner of that daytime radio station said, oh, there's a possibility already I'll be getting a 24 hour FMer in Boston. And he worked at it. Uh, The station was going for about $6.5 million. He only came up with $6 million. So he lost the deal. Oh, man. Eight months later, he died. He passed away. Oh, my gosh. So that never happened. So I'm sitting in Boston wondering, well, what's next? I got a call from a gentleman named James Alexander in Chicago, program director of WGCI then, which is in the early 90s. James Alexander says to me, I'm leaving to go to KKDA in Dallas. There will be an opening at WGCI in Chicago. So the first thing I said, Dave, I am not going to apply. That was one radio station that intimidated me. You had Doug Bangs on making a million dollars. You had Tom Joyner on making a million dollars. Sure, and he's Tom Joyner's the fly jock at this point. Yeah, yeah, you're right. He was the fly jock, uh, making all of this money, and the station had such a reputation that any station would die to have. So I said, no, I can't do it. I cannot even imagine someone even taking my phone call. But the general manager, Marv Dyson, took my phone call and said, I'm going to make you one of the finalists for um, uh, the interview to be the program director of WGCI. And the reason why Doug Banks came to visit me in Boston, who was working for WGCI at the time, uh-huh. he was on his way to Martha's Vineyard. And he came by to visit me at the station, and I put him on because I was in... I was a huge fan of Doug Banks. And, right. Um, he was the one that said to Marv Dyson, Dave, you may want to look at this little kid in uh, Boston uh, as, as our new program director at WGC on Chicago. 
So he, through that endorsement, encouraged Marv Dyson to reach out, who was the general manager. Amazing. So Doug Banks basically recommended you for the position and convinced yep. Marv Dyson to reach out to you. So yes. you never did actually pick up the phone to call on your own. No, I was so intimidated. Um, I <laughs> wow. think about it. I'm young, you know, still fresh out of college. And I mean, I got up the nerve to call and he came to the phone. I'm like, oh, Mark Dyson. <laughs> oh, I'm scared. Uh, and it was owned by Gannett uh, Broadcasting, sure. who also owned back then, uh, Dave, which you'll remember, Kiss in Los Angeles. Absolutely. So they didn't, they didn't have a lot of stations that had a Kiss in uh, Dallas, and uh, I think they had something in Houston as well. Just gigantic, yeah, gigantic stations. They own the U- USA Today. Yes, yes, they, all of that. Right, and uh, obviously Tom Joyner in Chicago, Rick Dees in Los Angeles. You, I mean, top-notch you got talent. It. You got it. So Marv said, okay, uh, we are narrowing it down to a few finalists. He put all of the program directors that were up for the job in the same hotel. So I'm bumping into oh my gosh. big names. <laughs> Unreal. So he brings you all into Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> That's almost like a, uh, a reality show right, in and of right. itself. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, hi, as a, an amazing program director. His name escapes me right now, but I ran into him. And then I ran to another program director. It was like three of us in the same hotel. So we all knew who was, um, you know, up for the the job? Oh my gosh! Did you all meet together intentionally, or just kind of passing? Oh each no, other no, in the no! Halls? We we bumped into each other. Got so it. it's not like they are just visiting. Oh, a guy named Tony Fields back in the day. I remember him. He was uh, one of the uh, candidates. And uh, I can't remember the other gentleman's name, but we all ended up talking. We couldn't avoid one another because we're walking toward, <laughs> we're walking toward each other. Talking so, about some psychological games that are being played. On. On. <laughs> so what I did, I got in town early to listen to the station so that I can monitor, make notes. But I tell you this, Dave, what really captured me was looking at the skyline of the city of Chicago. I was in one of those airport express buses. I still sure. remember that day. And Shalimar's song, The Second Time Around, was on. And Tom Joyner comes on introducing the song. I'm like, I want this job. I got to get it. So with me coming in early, I was able to critique two days of the radio station. So I walked into this meeting, a whole bunch of people in the meeting. A guy named Jerry D. Francisco. Oh, sure. He, sure, Legend. okay. Yeah. yeah, he was in the room guy named um, Jay Cook, uh, another legend uh, from uh, Gannett Radio, and then, of course, local uh, dignitaries from the radio station. So I did my full presentation, played some uh, excerpts from the station, presented my ideas, and I said, thank you very much. And I started walking out. Mr. Mr. Dyson said, hey, this is our meeting. Come back on in here. And they had a few questions, and within two days, he called and said, hands down, you are uh, the new program director at WGCI in Chicago. What did that feel like? Unbelievable and intimidating. Why? I had to go to work and see Tom Joyner. And I remember watching him walk by my office because he would have his briefcase coming in from Dallas, you know, fly jock, walking sure. down to the studio to go on the air. And then I remember one day I wanted to see him uh, at five o'clock, walk down the hall, 
he was gone. Voice tracking existed in the 90s. People didn't know that. He voice tracked his last hour to get on his airplane to go when, back to Dallas. To Dallas. Yeah, yeah. What was it like being Tom Joyner's program director? Well, I'll say this. First of all, I remember some advice he gave me. I walked down to the studio. He was on the air. I'm like, boy, let me have my words uh, you know, right before I talk to him. I said, Mr. Joyner, I was wondering if you would like to interview some artist. He looked at me and said, Elroy, I will only interview an artist if they can replace a hit. So keep that in mind. And I walked out of that room saying, if I've learned one thing today, that's what I've learned. So I always keep it in mind. Will this artist replace a hit if you are going to do an interview? And I thank Tom Joyner for even sharing that. Yeah. What a great piece of advice. And it also a testament to you, someone as young as you were. What are you at this point? Late 20s? Late 20s. Yep. Your late 20s, you take the advice of a legend and you really soak it in and learn from it. A lot of people at that age, as we were talking about earlier, we are full of bravado. We think we know better and may kind of say, oh, what do you know? And it says a lot just about your maturity and your overall essence, which I'm just so incredibly in awe of. And candidly, I wish I was more like you. I'm in a lot of ways, uh, I I need to be more like you. You've got just this amazing ability to, as I had mentioned before, to just make people feel so at home and uh, so important in those conversations, but also that humility. And uh, I find that so impressive. So Thank you. great lesson by Tom Joyner. You, this is now the beginning of went on, I mean, almost a 15-year run. Yeah, it became a part of uh, my life. 15 years, um, a lot of things happened in those 15 years. I ended up meeting my wife, who I've been married to for 25 years. We met in Chicago. Congratulations. How did well, you meet? <laughs> thank you. Well, it was a roast for Doug Banks <laughs> and, uh, and a newscaster named Diane Burns at the Hyde Regency. And uh, my wife said to the people that brought her along, oh, I want to go there to make connections because it's all about a business that she wanted to get into, which was doing weather. She wanted to be a meteorologist. And she said, maybe I can meet somebody and uh, there was a DJ named Silk Hurley, uh, Steve Silk Hurley, and his wife is Tony. Steve parked the car and uh, sort of said to his wife and Vonda, now my wife, you go in, I'll meet you. So Tony, Steve's wife, said, hey, Elroy, hey, Tony, I want you to meet someone. And I shook my uh, Vonda's hand. I'm like, wow, what a firm handshake. She worked for Essence magazine at that time. And then the event was about to start. So I couldn't have any further conversation because they were calling everybody in. Uh, So I said, I got to meet this lady after the event. So during the roast, there were DJs at the podium dogging me out because I either didn't hire them or (laughs) I didn't treat them right. So she's like, oh, my goodness, that's the guy that I just met. (laughs) <laughs> and he's over there laughing it up, <laughs> but she felt so embarrassed for me. So at the end of uh, the event, we saw each other walking toward one another. Maybe she had, of course, she, she had the intention of meeting me as well. So she said, um, boy, what a nice event. I said, 
yeah, it was all right. It's better to have God in your life. And she's like, whoa, whoa, uh, you're right. I said, I would love to invite you to church tomorrow. She came out to church the next day, and uh, within a year of us meeting, we got married. Unbelievable. I absolutely love that story. And I think you're the only guy I know that asked their now wife to go out to church on their first date. <laughs> but, you know, you know, I was thinking, I'm like, it's not going to work if I said, well, let's go to, you know, Lowry's or let's go to anywhere. I'm like, let me just stay focused so I, wouldn't, I would not mess this up because there was something about her that I loved and I still love today. What a move. Amazing, man. That is absolutely incredible. You're in Chicago. You're working for one of the biggest stations in the country. And I think Chicago is the best radio city in mm-hmm. the country. Do you pinch yourself? And are you saying to yourself, I can't believe I am where I am? It was a miracle even to this very day, to be attached to those call letters. I'll give you a quick story. Rick Dees came to visit WGCI, and then he was working with um, Gannett, owner of WGCI at that time. And I said to the receptionist, when Mr. Dees arrives, uh, just you know, notify me. So I walked out to the lobby to greet him. You would have thought I was talking to a kid. He said, I'm in the building of WGCI. He was so in awe of being in the building. I'm like, man, you're from Kiss in Los Angeles. Are you going crazy over this station? He was so uh, flattered to get a tour of the radio station, so flattered to be in that building. That's one situation. Another situation, a DJ said to me, I only want to say the call letters. Just let me go on the air and just say 107.5 (laughs) WGCI. (laughs) Did you entertain him and let him do it? I can't remember what the outcome was, but I remember remember that. And then to wait every quarter to see the ratings, to see a station – number one six plus or number one music station, number one 18 to 34, number two 18 to uh, 49, number one 25 to 54. This radio station I defined as the CNN with music. Why? We, We did podcasting. You know, everyone's saying podcasting is new. No, we did podcasting amidst playing the hits. And then every day part, from morning through overnight, we treated each day part as though it was the most significant day part ever. Even at two in the morning, we had this feature called Heartbreak Hotel. Listeners would call. You would be Dave. Hey, this is Dave. Hey, Dave and the DJ saying hi. Whew, I want to check into the Heartbreak Hotel. And the DJ would say, what room? Uh, just give me room 103. What's the problem, Dave? Well, I came home tonight and uh, my wife said, you know, she doesn't want to be with me anymore. So I need to check into the Heartbreak Hotel. People literally thought that it was a real hotel. (laughs) 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 It was such an incredible feature. I'm like, this is three o'clock in the morning. They are eating it up. Yeah. So it was just so much fun. And then another thing that I recall, um, when Katrina hit, we wanted to, you know, collect items, Dave, to send to New Orleans. I've never seen anything like this. We were at, at Operation Push from 6 a.m. in the morning until 6 p.m. 
we had to get 15, 18 wheelers to take supplies to New Orleans. And I'm like, this is unbelievable. How could one radio station do this? That is so amazing. Just, I mean, I could sit here and tell you story after story with regard to the magnitude of that radio station. How did you tap into, at that time too, the era that you were there, mm-hmm. I feel like the city was also firing, not only was GCI firing in all cylinders, mm-hmm. thanks to your incredible leadership and the talent that you had at the radio station, but the city, uh, Jordan was in his heyday and the Bulls were oh, on yeah. fire. Uh, Sammy Sosa and the uh, so many things were just happening that were Chicago centric that it became national attention on that city. Did that impact you at all? Yes. uh, We stole an idea from the Bulls when they repeated the next time we became number one. (laughs) We're like the Bulls. We're repeated as the number one station in Chicago. (laughs) That's great. great. (laughs) So we ran with that. We just went bananas. Um, You know, having the players checking in to the radio station of Scottie Pippen coming to our event. It was such a big, big deal. So I could tell you all of these stories, but there was something tragic that did happen in Chicago. Very popular nightclub, Dave. It was not um, completed in terms of the construction, and 21 people were stampede. Oh, man. It was an unbelievable experience. So for WGCI, 5.30 in the morning, we get word. While I turned on the TV, I saw Reverend Jesse Jackson at the location, and I heard the story. So I said to my morning man, You may want to open up the lines. Don't play any music. Not one song goes on the radio. So for four hours, we were on the air because what happened, most of the people that were stampede uh, were African. Well, all of them were African-Americans. So we knew right away that somebody uh, that's listening to the radio station may have known somebody there or a relative there. So for four hours... No music, just content, phone calls, listeners calling in. Yes, you know, I heard my, my cousin was there. It was just amazing. So we did a vigil for the 21 at a church, packed to capacity. So those were the type of things that this radio station, we were unorthodoxed. Let's put it that way. Yeah. We, just, we were just a reflection of the city of uh, Chicago. That shows such tremendous leadership on your part and the station's part. And also, I think why radio becomes such a beacon of the community in how Mm -hmm. we can react, unfortunately, to such tragic events such as that. And so quickly, and listeners feel comfortable as if you're a family member and they Mm -hmm. can share their such emotional feelings. Uh, Even the Heartbreak Hotel, uh, that's pretty serious when someone right. leaves you and yeah. that they felt comfortable doing that. It uh, just shows how important the station is uh, or was in the community. Yep. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Tell me a bit about education. And it's obviously, I, I know we talked about you getting your BA from Emerson and uh, you having to go through as quickly as you did at the school that closed. Uh, and then you also, we haven't talked about this yet, and I don't know where it falls in chronologically, but you've got your master's in business from Cambridge. Did you do that before you were in Chicago? or? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, the same owner that sponsored me to get my resident alien card wanted me to get my master's degree. And he said, uh, Elroy, we will underwrite it. 
I'm like, man, this is unbelievable. Oh my gosh. And he sent me to a one year program to get my master's degree in business. So after work, I'm, you know, shooting off to Harvard Square. That's where the school was located to get um, my master's degree. And again, another blessing that I never even uh, anticipated at all. That is a tremendous amount of work. Yeah. Such a prestigious degree, especially from an institution like Cambridge. Thank you. And Thank you. So certainly uh, you've got an amazing work ethic, but you're also very clearly left brain and right brain. You've got this amazing creative and... Uh, uh, I'll share this with you, uh, Dave, out of all honesty, and I've said it on an, another platform, I am not a smart guy. What I do, I hire people that are brighter and smarter than I. Um, if I'm going to hire a clone of Elroy Smith, the company will be stagnant. (laughs) Think about it. Why have two Elroys? Um, And I try to surround myself with people that are stronger in certain areas or in many areas that I'm weak in. And I'm not ashamed to say that I have a lot of weaknesses. But to empower people to do what they enjoy, uh, that is a hot button of mine. So I just wanted to say, just because of all of these degrees, I'm grateful to have them, but my strategy is to find people that are smarter than me. Well, it uh, shows certainly with the talent that you've worked with and just the stations and success that you've had that you are an amazing leader. I believe in that philosophy 100%, but I call BS in that you're not smart. <laughs> I think you're incredibly, you're incredibly smart. And also it shows a lot of confidence uh, in yourself to be able to do that. Most people are very fearful to mm-hmm. delegate and to right. give someone else uh, responsibility because you're showing actually a lack of control at that point. Right. And, uh, but here's what happens if you think that way. You end up working from six in the, six in the morning until midnight. Yeah. Why? Because you want to take all of the credit. You want to do everything so that that person that is smarter than you doesn't shine. I completely agree with that. And unfortunately, you see so many people that do do that and sure. get fatigued. And I think people sometimes there is a um, it's a decision fatigue. And so mm-hmm. President Obama, for instance, um, only had a couple different colors of suits in his closet mm-hmm. because he believed, as do a lot of people, Mark Zuckerberg subscribed to this philosophy, I think that Steve Jobs did as well, that you've got a limited amount of decisions that you can make in a day before your brain starts to get fuzzy because yes. of this decision fatigue. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is as it goes on later and later in the day, your decisions no longer are as sharp as they should be and you can start making poor decisions. And so therefore, if you only have a couple suits that you can choose from in your closet, <laughs> you're not <laughs> wasting decisions on what you're going to wear in the morning. Right. That's <laughs> awesome. That's great. So as you're showing all the success, they expand now your responsibility. So now not only are you overseeing GCI, but now they've expanded you to see uh, over, uh, see uh, WVAZ and WGRB. Do they make you like the VP of programming in the building? Yeah. You know, um, there's a guy named Steve Smith who um, at that point in time was overseeing, I think it was Clear Channel. And uh, when they took over, He came into town and said, you know, you're handling GCI, but I also want you to oversee V103 and Gospel 1390, which is WGRB. And one of the things that I always said I wanted to do was to do an urban AC. Why? 
I would go to visit my mother-in-law in Ashburn, Virginia, Northern Virginia, and I would listen to a station called Magic 102.3, owned by Radio 1. Every Christmas time, I'm like, I want to do this format. And then Steve Smith blessed me with uh, the opportunity to oversee both WGCI and V103. So at that point, and then, of course, uh, the gospel station. Again, I just made sure that both stations were distinctively different and continued on and um, you know helped to build that radio station as well. But I'll say this to correct many, many people. Elroy Smith found WGCI as a success. So I don't want anyone to think that, okay, you are the architect. No, I came on board and I continued with the legacy. Same with V103. I just came there. I came on board and said, you know what? A few little tweaks here and there and let's move forward. So nice of you to say. And one of the few people that would actually say something like that. Tell me a bit about your relationship with Steve. I actually worked with Steve at the same time. I was programming KBIG here in LA, and so Steve yeah. was my boss for a while. And obviously Steve Steve was not, I was doing hot AC. Steve was not, was really known, as you know, kind of hip-hop. Uh, he was right in your pocket, and that was kind of the his expertise. Um, did you guys get along well, and was that sometimes challenging? Oh, to this very day, we get along. I love that guy. I admire him. Uh, I watched him in terms of what he did in New York. And maybe about two months ago, I gave Steve props. I said, Steve, whether you know it or not, you are the one that came up with number one for hip hop uh, and R&B. And he's like, oh, you know, humble. Oh, Elroy. I said, no, you are the guy. You are also the guy that put celebrities on the air. He put Isaac Hayes on the air at Kiss in New York. Ashford and Simpson, he put those two on the air. He has a lot to do with a lot of the morning shows. Big Boy, he was influential with yeah, Big Boy. Uh, yeah, yeah, the list goes on and on and on and on. And um, he's radical, and I like that. But one of the things I never knew until probably three or four years ago, I never knew that he's a lawyer or he has a law degree. Are you serious? I never knew that. <laughs> He said, I, I have a law degree from Pepperdine. I'm like, that's incredible. Kidding. I had no idea. <laughs> He'll say, hey, Elroy, send me your contract. Let me review it. And he's good. <laughs> no, he's good that's at right. uh, reviewing people's contracts. He's really, really a smart guy. I don't even know. Maybe he was asking me how my son is doing. I said, oh, at some point he wants to go to Pepperdine. He said, I went there. I have a law degree from. I said, you're kidding, Steve. You've never shared that with me. Amazing. Well, if you need help at Pepperdine, our business manager, uh, Bonnie, got her, M her MBA from uh, Pepperdine. So I know a, wow. uh, a okay. bit or two about how difficult and challenging getting your MD MBA is. But uh, right. Steve's now at, uh, um, at Cox and doing really well overseeing the programming there. Yep. So in 2007, after 15 years, you decide to leave and you go to work for Radio One in Philadelphia. Tell me a bit about that transition and why you made it. Yeah, well, uh, there's a gentleman named Barry Mayo. I mentioned him earlier. He reached out to me, and Miss Hughes, the founder of Radio One, uh, she had to remind me that I used to come to Bermuda with my son, Alfred Liggins, who runs her company, sure. and we remember you when you were a little boy in Bermuda. And you know, I just don't remember when she said that. 
That's so, incredible. So wait a second. So Kathy Hughes would bring yes. her son Alfred to Bermuda, yeah, right? And they met you at that point when you yeah, were a kid. They said I we met you in Bermuda, and no trust way. me, I I did not even remember. So they've known me for quite some time, but I just didn't remember. And uh, so they reached out to me, gave me the opportunity to go to Philadelphia. And then at some point, oh, no, no, I'll tell you what happened there that I'll never forget. We hired Charlemagne the God to do the morning show on 100.3, The Beat. And he was on the cusp of blowing up. And we were advised to let him go. And I've apologized and I'll do it again. I've said to Charlemagne, I am so sorry that I did not fight to keep you there. I was the operations manager. And uh, to this very day, if there's one regret, um, Dave, that regret is I should have fought more to keep Charlemagne. He's one of the most talented people that I know. And I just felt it. I'm like, man, it's that time he's now connecting and... Man, I did not realize that. I know you guys yeah. are incredibly close now and you actually consult with him, which I want to get to here in a few minutes, but mm-hmm. I had no idea that you've hired him and then had to fire him. Uh, it was it was just so difficult. He was easy to work with. He followed uh, direction. He went on the next day with tips that we shared with him to you know, present on, on his morning show. And but it was just a hard day for me uh, when that happened. And to this very day, it's hard for me to erase that because every time I see him, I'm like, look at this jewel. Um, so that, well, that, that's I think a story you should, that I'll I think forget. you should stop beating yourself up because he's obviously gone on to have tremendous success. <laughs> <laughs> he's probably not even thinking about me. Right? Yeah. Maybe you say, thank you for firing me. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It probably turned out to be the best thing professionally that right. ever happened to right. him. So. <laughs> <laughs> so true. So I, I, I'll just never forget that. And then as time went on in Philadelphia, um, Jay Stevens, who was um, over uh, all the programming for Radio One, reached out to me one day and said, look, uh, we have a number of inspiration stations. Uh, we would like for you to oversee the inspiration stations and i didn't know anything about that but what i did do along with <laughs> along with the hip-hop and r&b stations? yeah hip-hop r&b okay. no you know what he said you know what i'm gonna move uh boogie d into uh 100.3 the hip-hop but you'll keep the r&b and you will oversee all of the inspiration stations that we own fm and am throughout the country so what I did, I rushed uh, to the car, uh, looked at the RDS in the car, trying to remember all of these songs that are playing. Oh, that's what it is. Oh, okay, I'll make a note of that. That's how I learned the format quickly. <laughs> you know how it would just flash the song up uh, on the radio? Like, like cramming for a test. I mean. <laughs> and Dave, I learned it quickly, and all of a sudden I, had, I put together a formula for the format, uh, shared it with all of the program directors, and... Uh, it was just a, just an amazing experience. So you're on the road, I take it, quite a bit at this point. Yeah, I was, um, you know, of course, we had an inspiration station in Houston, uh, Washington, D.C., um, Charlotte. So, yes, I was doing uh, lots of traveling, but most of uh, the sessions were held uh, over the phone. But, of course, when they wanted me to visit, I jumped up and said, OK, yeah. I'll be there. 
Did you find at this point that you liked working more as a vice president or kind of overseeing a format for a large company such as Radio One or now Urban One, or did you like programming an individual station better? What did, was more um, enjoyable for you? Yeah, that's a good question. I always wanted to have a home-based station. Why? It's tough going into a market and you're no longer the program director. It's I, I still have that feel or just a desire to have at least a home base station. I did because I was overseeing um, two stations in Philadelphia. Did I enjoy doing it? Absolutely. Were the people wonderful to work with? Absolutely. And one of the things I've learned, even with overseeing other program directors, if they see that you are a fan of their work, just like a jock, they will acquiesce and they will work with you. But as soon as they get or get the sense that you are just being super critical, you're nitpicking, uh, nothing is good for them. Um, they, they shut down on you, and they are not a believer of who you are as their leader. Interesting. It is just a rocket ship of a career. And from Radio 1, you then pivot and go to Summit Media to run their Greenville, South Carolina station, JMZ, and at the same time, you stay with Reach Media, which is the syndication arm of Urban One, I'm sorry, Radio One now, Urban One, overseeing their Grammy award-winning uh, Yolanda Adams syndication morning, syndicated morning show. So how did that all come to be? Yeah, uh, when Summit gave me the opportunity, I did explain to them that I am still involved with um, Radio One, Reach Media, Is It Okay? Wanted to get their approval. And they said, absolutely. So we would have conference calls uh, once a week with uh, the Yolanda Adams Morning Show. Of course, here's a big gospel superstar that's hosting this gospel show. And I, you know, worked hard at building a relationship with her. And then again, she realized that, boy, this guy is a proponent of what I'm doing. And that relationship evolved into something very, very special. Um, so I'm, I'm so grateful for her because someone of her magnitude could have said, you know what, Elroy, I got this. I got all of these fans that love me. Don't need some little tips from you. But that was never um, her, her position with me. So it was a great experience um, doing Summit and also holding on to uh, Reach Media with the Yolanda Adams Morning Show. When you were working with, and I should have asked this prior to the last question, but when you were working with Radio 1, how involved, and let me back up, most of you probably know what a legend Kathy Hughes is. And if you do not, uh, highly recommend listening to Guy Raz's podcast, How I Built This. He interviewed her a few years ago, and her story is just amazing. Really, mm -hmm. as a single mom to mm -hmm. build a gigantic radio company and have so many successful stations around the country and a very successful syndication company now and so forth uh, is just uh, incredibly impressive. But what was that like working with Kathy and Alfred, and how often were they in involved kind of in the day-to-day -day with what you were doing well thank you for asking uh miss hughes or we would call her miss h she loved philadelphia just as alfred did uh, alfred went to warden institute so he had this infinity to that city and same with miss h uh miss h would come into town walk into the radio station we all were forewarned before she walked in Everyone would be mumbling, Miss H will be here at two o'clock. Oh, boy. <laughs> it was just a little intimidating. Uh, but she would walk in super friendly, very direct, though. 
uh, no fluff, but a very, very caring lady. First thing she'll say is, how's your family? How's your wife? Um, which makes you relax and makes her become more, what, humanistic versus, hey, how's the ratings? Uh, sure. Why are the ratings low? But no, she, she was very, very concerned about the family. And uh, it, it would just, she would end up making, making it a good day for people when she visited the station. And an, another thing that's amazing about her, if she saw, if she saw the kitchen a mess, you would see her in the kitchen of the radio station cleaning it up. <laughs> I'm like, okay, we didn't do a good job because the owner is here and doesn't <laughs> like how the kitchen looks. <laughs> yeah. And uh, they did this, um, when I say that Radio One did a gospel cruise every year, we would go to various islands. And she was one of the coordinators of uh, the cruise. 2,000 people packed on oh, this uh, cruise cruise liner and she was right there and working closely with her what a remarkable lady to this very day i am an admirer of hers and i'll tell you why if someone is banging on 32 banks and each bank is saying no or 31 and then the 32nd bank says yes that is determination that's resilience and to see that story unfold to see that story what evolve into this what huge enterprise we all need to learn from that a lot of times we would give up after what two banks <laughs> sure. said no or whatever or you're not going to make it here and we're like you know what three people said i won't make it so it must be true that is not true she's an example of that such an example in that era as well a black yes, female business owner it took talking about tenacity and intelligence yes. and willpower just uh, incredible and to have a company to this day that's still having such success it's yep. uh, a very difficult thing to do and uh, an incredibly impressive story so what made you decide on the transition you know, going from you're in Chicago, you're in Philly, uh, you were in Boston. I know, obviously, you grew up in a small country, Bermuda, with 65,000 mm-hmm. right. uh, citizens. Mm-hmm. But to now go from these top 10 markets and then move to Greenville, what was that like and that kind of change? Well, first of all, there was something that I tried to do, but it didn't work. I wanted to buy a translator in Chicago. It was going for... million dollars and um, someone said you know what that is a lot of money for a translator and I'm like you know what I I couldn't buy a full stick for 4.5 million dollars let me get this translator so uh, similar to Kathy Hughes but I gave up on the 18th bank I went to (laughs) no kidding banks uh, and all of them said no And I'm happy that they did. Why? I would have been sitting here saying, I am still bankrupt. I am still repaying uh, the investors because that that would have not been a good investment at all. So I gave up on bank number 18. And uh, the reasoning for not helping me, I didn't have any collateral. I didn't own a home. (laughs) I didn't own several Burger Kings where if the station didn't work out, they'll take the Burger Kings from me. Um, So at that point, I said to my wife, we are done. We can't continue with this. We raised about $250,000 and we wanted to get the rest from the bank. 
And of course, as I just stated, they said no. So I walked away from that deal and reached out to a guy named Bill Tanner who said, oh, by the way, uh, legendary Bill Tanner, the late Bill Tanner. Oh, by the way, we have this opportunity in Greenville and sort of researched uh, the properties. Hmm. Wow. 100,000 water station consistently. Number one, I'm talking about 107.3 jams. And then, of course, they had Hot 98.1. Went in town, interviewed, um, was offered the job, you know, right away. And I stayed there for 11 months. And you're wondering why only 11 months? Well, um, a guy named Pat Paxton, <laughs> who was overseeing um, Enacom for right. a number of years, he called out of the blue and I'm just sort of doing my thing. He said, Oh, this is Pat Paxton from Enacom. I said, hey, Pat, how you doing? He said, fine. Um, Are you under contract? And I said, yes. He said, well, boy, we can't talk to you then. And he said, do you want me to talk further? I said, yeah, what what are you thinking? He said, well, um, we have an opportunity in San Francisco at KBLX and KRBQ. I said, well, Pat, I am under contract. He said, market number four or market number 53? (laughs) <laughs> good question yeah yeah oh my goodness uh dave it was crazy and he said i'll let you think about it so i reached out to um bill tanner then who was the vp of programming and one of the owners of sure. summit and i explained the situation to mr tanner and he said you are under contract I said, Mr. Tanner, that's why I am being vulnerable, saying, would you allow me to pursue this opportunity in market number four? I don't know. You're under contract. And uh, he was not happy about that. And uh, at the 11th hour, he and the general manager acquiesced and allowed me out of my contract. Um, So, yeah, it, it it, it was a tough one. It was an emotional one. And I even tried to help with regard to recommending people to replace me. But I did wrong, meaning when you put your signature on a contract, right, you've made what this commitment to honor it. And that's why I had to go back to the guy that gave me the contract just to see if we could come to an agreement where, look, I get it. This is a great opportunity. We'll be all right. But it didn't go that way. So eventually they gave in and I packed up and came to um, the Bay Area. Did you and Bill ever, were you able to make amends? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But it it was hard at the moment. And uh, because I didn't even commit to a year, it was a two-year deal. And um, Man, uh, you brought it up earlier and then... I know we were on our webinar the other day that you did, and thank you for doing that. Um, But you talk about vulnerability, and you just shared something that was very vulnerable. Talk to me a little bit about that and just being able to bring up difficult things that are hard to talk about. Well, I was going through a real difficult time um, when I mentioned to Bill, um, you know, hey, I really would like to pursue this. I'm wearing shoes with holes in my soul. Just to let him know that, boy, it is really, really tough. So it didn't sound as though, you know, Summit is just not good. That's why I want to leave. 
I said, Bill, it's not that you haven't treated me well. So I had to get super vulnerable with him so that he is not thinking, oh, man, he's going to dog out Summit because Summit didn't. It was none of that. It was just an opportunity for me to go to a market that caught my attention and go to this legendary radio station, and but leave them in good hands. And I wanted to help them in terms of the transition and that didn't work out either. But I think my vulnerability, being open and honest with him, uh, made him think about it. Boy, why force this guy to stay here? Sure, sure. Well, I think good leadership, certainly on his part, and also on your part, that's not an easy situation, but to have an opportunity such as that present itself yeah. is really hard to also turn down. Right. And so I 100% get why you did it, but also yep. I understand why you were conflicted by the sure. decision. Oh, yeah. Yep. Talk to me about moving to San Francisco. Um, my wife and I never had an interest in the West Coast. Never talked about it. The West Coast was never on our radar. But there was something about the Bay Area that caught my attention. The last time I was in the Bay Area was in the 80s. I came to the Bay Area uh, for a conference, but... The conference was at night. I didn't even see the Bay Area. Yeah, it's like, okay. Was it a, was it a Gavin conference? Yes, yes. Yeah. It, I was, as I was thinking, uh, Dave, I'm like, it was some magazine, Gavin. Yeah, thank yeah. you, thank you. I may have been at uh, a couple of those as well. Those were a good time. So, right, right, right. So, Dave, I didn't have a feel of San Francisco. They flew me in. I'm like, my goodness, this is an urban type of vibe here. Did not know, didn't do any research. The only thing I knew was the Golden Gate Bridge and came in town, met with um, a gentleman named Steve Donardo, who was the um, general manager then, and uh, Pat Paxton flew in to meet me, and uh, the meeting went really well, and they named me the program director of uh, KBLX and uh, the throwback station um, Q102. It was an amazing, an amazing ride. Um, this radio station, KBLX, oh my goodness, it has so much love uh, from the community. And then to do the throwback uh, format, it was really great. Uh, sure. So again, uh, I got story after story because of all of these, you know, wonderful, wonderful uh, experiences. You know, I just realized, I think you come to town and all of a sudden the sports franchises go on incredible tears because while you were there, the Giants won, what, three World Series? It was and insane. Then, yeah, it was completely insane. And then um, the Warriors end up winning how many? Um, two or three as well. It, yeah, it's like, you know, uh, my experience in Chicago with the Bulls and now here on the West Coast and my kids, uh, they were just Warriors all the way, all the way. <laughs> so they were happy, uh, Dave, to, uh, to, to be here. And uh, to oversee both of those giants, uh, meaning radio stations, it was uh, just uh, an incredible thing. One of the things that I do remember, I think I shared this on another platform, when Hurricane Harvey hit, we had a brainstorming meeting. What can we do to rescue all of these people? And one of the DJs said, let's uh, collect diapers and wipes for babies. And she came up with the title, From the Bay to the Babies. Uh, we That's did a great. live broadcast at Target from 6 in the morning until 6 p.m. We collected over 660 uh, wipes and diapers and sent them off to Houston for the Harvey victims. 
those are the type of things that um, I just enjoy. They are just so meaningful. They are so significant because I have this philosophy. Everybody can play Leave the Door Open by Anderson Pack and Bruno Mars, but it's all what happens in between the songs that make the difference. It sounds like, too, serving your community is incredibly important to you, yes. which makes yes. a tremendous amount of sense to me because you're just overall ethos. You give so much to the industry, to people that uh, are asking you for favors and mm-hmm. so forth. And then uh, obviously what we talked about when you were at GCI and the tragedy at the nightclub and sure. you opened up the phone lines and mm-hmm. then this promotion. It's uh, tremendous things that you've done. And I could not uh, agree more on how important those things are, not only for mankind, but also for our medium. That's when it really shines. Very good. Totally agree. So you mentioned, and thank you for sharing your entrepreneurial spirit and trying to buy a translator in Chicago, of which you were ultimately not able to do, and in retrospect, probably quite fortunate because it wouldn't be worth the $4.5 million today. It would have been off the air today um, because I would have not been able to recoup those type of dollars for the translator. And the signal was not a full signal. You know, sometimes you get excited because you see other translators or you see other people doing well. And I was influenced by a friend of mine, Steve Hegwood, who has a translator in Atlanta. He's done a great job with uh, Streets 94.5. So that inspired me. But I'll always say to people that may want to talk to me about it, it was a learning experience. It felt as though That one year trying to do that, I learned so much about purchasing a radio station or a translator. Tell me more. What were you going to do with the translator? If you purchased it, what was it? We were going to do an inspirational station similar to Praise in Atlanta because Chicago is, um, you know, into gospel music, into inspiration music. And that was going to be our uh, our focus. And um, so we were lining things up and thinking about who would be on the air. But I, I feel so blessed, uh, Dave, that it didn't happen because it would have been a financial catastrophe for me and my family. Sometimes things work out for the best, even though at You're the time right. it doesn't You're feel right. that way. Just I ask uh, Charlemagne the God. <laughs> 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 Which, tell right. me now about... This entrepreneurial spirit, which uh, obviously you you have, and you've just now launched your own company, Elroy Smith, the coach, uh, and you're coaching radio broadcasters and podcasters, including Charlemagne. Tell me a bit about the new business. Well, first of all, it's a passion of mine. If I go into a radio station, of course, I like the format to be pristine, but at the same time, I like to watch DJs go from here to here. And to, of course, watch a Charlemagne uh, explode the way he's exploded. To um, see a Doug Banks, who when I first met him, he said, uh, I said, Doug, I don't hear phone calls on your show. He said, can I put phone calls on the air? I said, yeah. I mean, this big legendary guy wasn't putting phone calls on the air. A gentleman named Crazy Howard McGee, uh, who was a monster in Chicago back in the day, to see him come from what uh, part-time to full-time, replacing Tom Joyner, replacing Doug Banks, that is a thrill, a tremendous thrill of mine. So basically what I do, I do what four instructional uh, classes, Dave. One, tips on becoming a great personality. Two, vulnerability. Three, how to interview and how to tell a story. And then four, on branding. 
And then the, all of the other sessions are critiques and to play back what they did on the air and give them direction as to how to uh, improve. So really, that is a side joy of mine. So I just sort of do it, you know, whenever I'm available. But it's a joy to hear someone <laughs> say, you know what, man, I'm going to compare what I did last week to what I've done this week. Because really, if you're a liner jock and that's all you're doing, reading liners, I cannot imagine you becoming a household name in this business. I don't think there could be a better person to bestow their advice and experience on than you. I mean, you've uh, done so much, accomplished so much, and have had so much success in uh, some of the most, uh, if not the most competitive radio markets, San Francisco, Chicago, Philadelphia. I mean, those are tough places to program, and yep. uh, every one of them you've done incredibly well. Where can people find you? Um, is there a, a website for your new? Well, I know there's a website. Yeah, yeah. I'm leading you into this question. I know there's a website, but tell <laughs> everyone the website. It's, a, by the way, a fantastic website. Oh, and uh, thank you. The, the talent that you've worked with uh, is uh, remarkable. Yeah, it's elroy.thecoach at gmail.com if you want to just shoot me an email. Or if you want to see the website, it's elroythecoach.com. Now, if you want to talk to me or email me directly, elroy.thecoach at gmail.com. Elroy. You didn't follow that, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were smart, Dave. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a little slow. I'm right. sorry. Like you, I'm not that smart. Right, I right. just hire really You're smart people good. around me. Man, good thank stuff. you good so stuff. much for uh, being with me today. Really appreciate it. It's been absolutely incredible. And uh, I, I can't, again, tell you just how much respect I have for you. And thank you for treating us so well over the years. We would not be where we are today, uh, Benstown, myself, uh, R-Dub, if it weren't for you and your generosity. and just the Well, I, I appreciate you accommodating me. You could have chosen someone else. So I want to say to you, thank you so much, uh, Dave. You're, you're a gentleman. And I uh, just appreciate your time and uh, appreciate everything that Benstown is doing as well. Thank you, my friend. All right, you take care. Thanks for listening to Chachi Loves Everybody. If you like the show, we hope you'll leave us a five-star rating and tell your friends. Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This has been a Benstown Podcast production, hosted and researched by Dave Chachi Dennis. Executive producer, Kevin Horton. Produced and edited by Tom Green. Show coordinator, Juliana Parisi and Laura Keeney.